jam-packed show today. On the panel, Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, Global BC's Richard Zussman, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Then we'll talk to the speculation tax of the BC Home Builders Association's Neil Moody, and then BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson will join us. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Uh, kind of a gray overcast day here in Kamloops. A lot going on. Uh, just to give you a heads up, we're having some trouble getting a hold of all the panel members, as I understand it. Uh, Vaughn, it's just you and I right now. We'll keep everybody entertained until our colleagues step forward. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm here, Shane. Can oh, you hear me? Oh, good. There, there's Richard. Is Shannon online too or no? No, sounds like we don't all right, so uh, Vaughn, uh, you, Richard, and I will chat, and we'll try and get hold of Shannon here and see how she plays out. Uh, Richard, why don't we start with you and just talk about the civic level. I know you've been busy all week covering UBCM, and uh, I talked to Todd Stone this morning, and uh, you can tell me if this is correct or not, but he says he's never seen such uh, anger towards uh, something like the speculation tax across mayors who, who would normally fall both sort of left and right, all holding hands and saying this thing's not fair. Uh, you were on the ground there at UBCM all week, uh, and civic level, uh, what's the level of unrest over the speculation tax and the employer health tax for that matter? Yeah, a lot of it depends on where you live, Shane. So one of the, I think what uh, Todd is referring to is uh, Niels Jensen. He's the Oak Bay mayor uh, and he ran unsuccessfully for the NDP leadership against Carol James. So he has some NDP pedigree, and so he has been speaking out against the speculation tax with a number of mayors. They had a press conference earlier in the week. I'm still here in Whistler. We're awaiting the, the final event of the UBCM, which will be John Horgan's speech in a few hours' time. But, you know, a lot of the discussions in and around UBCM have evolved around the speculation tax and consultations uh, with communities. You know, it's not surprising that uh, these certain mayors are stepping forward. They're the ones that believe that the speculation tax uh, will negatively impact their community. So we're seeing some communities on Vancouver Island. Uh, we're seeing the mayor of Kelowna and West Kelowna. Interestingly as well, Shane, we've seen some mayors that uh, live in areas where the speculation tax won't apply, but they've already seen a big drop in terms of the uh, interest in properties, uh, and they've seen a decrease in land value in their communities because they are along the Alberta border. And what they're being told by people is that Albertans don't want to buy in BC anymore because they're angry about the tax. So even though a tax may not apply to them in a certain community along the border, uh, they are angry about it and are walking away from deals, and that's having a big impact for those communities. Interesting. Uh, we still have a red-hot real estate market here in Kamloops. I wonder how much of that applies because uh, the, that particular tax does not apply here. Uh, Vaughn, we heard uh, speeches from Andrew Weaver and Andrew Wilkinson uh, on Wednesday, Thursday. We'll hear from the, uh, the Premier a little later on this morning. Uh, but um, the, as far as the two Andrews goes, both of them took pretty heavy uh, aim at the speculation tax. They seem to have some commonalities there. Uh, as you noted in your column today, they're not likely to topple the legislation, but I don't know if there's a, a the chance they could force some other kinds of changes. What do you think? Well, they got the power. You know, the interesting thing about the two Andrews is that they both attacked the speculation tax in almost exactly the same way. They both said that the title is misleading. It is not a tax on real estate speculation. They both said that the choice of communities where it applies is arbitrary and unfair. Some communities are being picked on. Others are, are, are being left off the hook. And the third thing that both of them said is that it unfairly attacks is unfairly targets British Columbians and Canadians. Despite the government always talking about how this is uh, framing this as a tax on foreign real estate speculators, Weaver and Wilkinson both know that the government has admitted in the House that 70% of the people that will pay this tax are British Columbians or other Canadians. So you got the two leaders saying they don't like the tax for the same reason, and look, do the math. Between them, they lead two political parties that have a majority of seats in the House. They've got 45 votes between them. The government cannot pass this tax without the support of either a few Greens or a few Liberals. Uh, and so if the two Andrews are serious about their criticisms, they could combine to either rewrite the speculation tax or kill it. Yeah, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, Shannon, have you joined us yet? 
I have. There you are. There you are. Welcome. Good to hear you. Um, one of the main critiques pointed at Mr. Weaver is is he, he threatens a lot, uh, but doesn't necessarily do much. He's got more bark than bite so far. Uh, that said, in the past, he has uh, told us uh, that uh, in this formation of government that he would be willing to work with the NDP or even the Liberals on an issue-by-issue basis to some extent. He has not done that in actuality. Uh, do you think there's any room here for, for him to actually do something as opposed to just talk about it? I mean... Weaver does have a reputation, like you said, for, for more bark than bite. Uh, he loves to talk. He's great for colorful quotes. He, as you also said, do does kind of have this reputation of, of maybe being sort of full of hot air. Um, and so maybe it is coming time for him to actually sort of step up and, and do something around this. Um, I'm not sure about the speculation tax in particular. He did seem to kind of walk back his, his comments, his opposition, at least to my ear yesterday, saying, you know, they're, he's probably not going to kill the tax. They'll look at amending it um, instead, making some substantial changes. I don't know exactly what those would be. We haven't seen um, the legislation yet. So that will be something we'll, we're waiting for. The other thing with Weaver is he said that LNG is the line in the sand for his party working with this government. Yeah. And the Horgan government has, you know, sort of said that they are going to push ahead with LNG. They think that it would be good for BC, for the economy. So that is likely to be a do or die moment, I think, if the government, if we get this. Um, confirmation for the LNG refinery up in Kitimat, um, are the Greens actually going to, you know, draw that line and say, no, this is this is territory into which we will not go hand in hand with this government? Yeah. Richard, what do you think of that? I mean, as you, as you well know, Mr. Weaver's made plenty of threats, but between uh, some of his anger at this tax and maybe more so on the LNG front, is he going to be forced to kind of walk the talk at some point here? I don't think so. I think this government's going to be around for a while, Shane. There's a lot to unpack there. First, I spoke to Andrew Wilkinson yesterday about whether he'd be willing to work with Andrew Weaver on amending uh, the legislation. He basically said that he doesn't agree with Weaver either. So they both disagree with the speculation tax, but they disagree with the speculation tax for different reasons. So I'm not sure I see a scenario... Uh, as Vaughn describes it, where the two sides can get together and figure out amendments that work. Uh, Wilkinson said he's already tabled legislation that would help uh, curb speculation in the market. That seems to be the legislation he's happy with. Weaver doesn't like that legislation. He wants to change it to something else. So we're going to have this point where we're going to have this tax debated in the legislature. Uh, once, as Shannon mentioned, we actually see it, which I'm being told by Finance Minister Carol James uh, is going to come pretty soon once the session starts in October, uh, and that debate will take place and unfold. Uh, in terms of LNG, what I'm being told about Horgan's speech today is that part of it will be uh, around LNG and the possibility of this mega project. The buzz around here at UBCM is that we could get a final investment decision from Shell as early as October 1st. Uh, so that's right around the corner, and uh, everyone here is anticipating uh, it will be to go ahead with that project in Kitimat. Uh, so we could end up at a point here very soon where Weaver needs to make a decision, but you know, there's so many other important agenda items still on the table for Weaver over the next few years, including the referendum that's coming up on proportional representation and the climate action plan. So I just don't see these as issues that uh, uh, Weaver's willing to... to you know, end the government over. Yeah, I would tend to sort of concur. Vaughn, what do you think? What's your read of the situation? I'd imagine that Mr. Weaver's treading on dangerous ground here. At some point, he has to do something as opposed to just talk about it. Yeah, now, on LNG, uh, what Richard is hearing at the UBCM, I think uh, the, the decision is imminent, I think is correct. Uh, we had an announcement this week that the 21st Nations along the route of the gas pipeline that will feed that terminal in Kitimat, that all 20 have now signed on to benefit-sharing agreements for the pipeline. So that probably means that pipeline can go ahead and be built as soon as Shell gives a final investment decision. And yes, you're right, I think that's imminent. I don't think Weaver would have an opportunity to stop 
LNG um, because I don't think the liberals would vote with Weaver to stop LNG. Look, they've invested an awful lot of political capital and time and energy and effort to making sure LNG goes ahead. So if the House has a vote on that, I think the liberals would either vote with the government or conveniently arrange for some of them to be away so the government doesn't get defeated on that issue. The, the, the remaining issue, look, on the speculation tax is if these two parties wanted to work together, they could substantially change the speculation tax. They could agree to eliminate some of the objections. I agree with Richard and Shannon that they probably won't do that, and part of that is because some liberals hate Weaver and the Greens more than they hate the speculation tax. The parties don't trust each other, and so far they've not been able to work together on anything. All right, uh, we got to hit a commercial big just quickly around the horn here because I know the Premier's going to talk this afternoon. Uh, it's not every address at the UBCM by the Premier that has some big things, but I know Gordon Campbell was fond of having some fairly large announcements at UBCM. Christy Clark, not so much. Uh, anything in the wind other than sort of the LNG that we've already touched on that might be in the Premier's speech that we're hearing about, Shannon? Um, LNG is the only one that I'm aware of. Unlike Richard, I'm not up there at the moment. I do think that Horgan has indicated that he, too, will use the UBCM as a platform for making major announcements. Last year, we had the Community Crisis Innovation Fund, which was $15 million, I think, over three years for community-based programs to support addiction recovery. Um, so, and some... some other substantial investments there. So I think it's likely that the premier is going to make an announcement or announcements in his speech um, about more sort of either investment or opportunities that he sees on the horizon. Richard? Yeah, I don't think anything big's coming today. Last year was also, I don't know what Shannon said, modular housing. So we're seeing those programs rolled out across the province now. I think there will probably be some sort of press release out in terms of funding, but you know that's pretty typical. We're not going to see getting rid of tolls on the Coquihalla, which was Campbell's big, big UBCM promise, or building the George Massey Bridge, uh, which is the Christy Clark legacy project that's now been uh, put on the afterburner by the uh, the NDP. So we're not going to see one of those big legacy promises. It's also a weird time, Shane, with the municipal elections happening. Yeah, you know, there's a lot shifting and changing so you know the relationship that the province uh, is building as municipalities is important but they're going to have to build new relationships with a whole other set of mayors and councillors next year after those elections so i think this this ubcm has been a little bit subdued i think compared to ones in the past vaughn you concur Yes, and I, you know the local government also has uh, the fact that they're heading uh, the elections earlier. And look, you saw the prime minister and the premier intervene in effect in the Surrey civic election a couple of weeks ago and announce this LRT project out there that is in fact opposed by at least one of the people running for mayor of Surrey. Yeah. So uh, a little interference, I would say, in local government rather than goodies at this point. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll talk about uh, uh, that and a whole lot more on the other side here as we continue our discussion with Richard Vaughn and Shannon on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Richard Zussman, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. We only got you guys for a couple more minutes here to the bottom of the hour, so we'll try and move fast here. Uh, taking out the garbage announcement <laughs> on Friday, probably the one of the worst ones I've seen in, in a long time is this rental hike rolled out, 4.5%, the maximum allowable cap for 2019, uh, the highest in what, more than a decade or so. Uh, Vaughn, uh, your take on this thing, I mean, it, it's uh, the idea of rolling things out Friday is that uh, you can get some bad news out and thankfully or hopefully Monday that, that uh, there's not a whole lot of play in them. That has not been the case in this situation. No, look, the big promise that the New Democrats made in the election was affordability and affordability for housing, and every renter has reacted to this about what you'd expect. This is a big jump in rents because rents are already very high, and a lot of people are saying, where's that $400 renter's rebate that the NDP promised in the election? They're saying, well, it's still in the works, and we've got this task force or anything, and all this going on. But people are looking at 4.5% next year from this uh, cap uh, up to that, and they are paying 4% more this year because that cap was approved last year. 
Uh, Shannon, uh, this government has talked a lot about affordability and tackling the housing crisis, uh, and yet this is uh, probably one of the most anti-unaffordable things I've seen in a while, and it's drawing outrage, especially with rental markets in many cities, including this one hovering at or near zero. Uh, is there pressure mounting now on the Horgan government to change the legislation where it concerns these rental hikes? The Liberals didn't. The NDP so far have not. I think there has to be. Um, it, there, there are a lot of people in D.C. who rent, who cannot afford to get into the housing market, many of them younger people who don't think they'll ever be able to buy into the housing market. So renting is a reality for them, and they are seeing just immense increases in their cost of housing. So there are government programs in place to sort of help homeowners get a break on their property taxes. You know, the government really has, I think, sort of, taken some steps to curb the housing market you know we're getting the speculation tax they've expanded the foreign buyers tax and boosted it so homeowners and and those looking to get into the real estate market have seen sort of some action from the government and renters despite i think what our housing minister has said have seen very little you know there have been some some changes made to the Rental Tenancy Act, and, and Robinson has pointed out that they have invested in the Rental um, Tenancy Board to try and you know make it easier for disputes to be resolved. But when it comes to affordability, there really hasn't been a lot of action yet. And I was kind of blown away. There was a piece in the TIE written by Andrew McLeod finding that since the Liberal government introduced the formula for the maximum rent increase in 2004. Rents in the province have increased by 40% more than the price of inflation. So that's, it's just an astounding number. And when you're looking at a four and a half percent rent increase, as I said on Twitter, when the announcement came out, like how many renters are going to see their salaries go up by more than four and a half percent next year? Yeah. I don't think there's going to be very many. Yeah, and that's been the problem, especially in Metro Vancouver, is all these costs skyrocket, wages and other things have more or less remained stagnant and on the opposite side of the spectrum. Uh, Richard, uh, what, if anything, can the government do here? I mean, they did make some hefty affordability promises. Flies in the face of that. Yeah, the big thing they could do is announce part of this rental task force that they're getting rid of that automatic 2% increase every year. So the way the formula works now is that it's a 2% increase plus inflation every year. And I anticipate that this uh, task force will recommend very, very soon to the housing minister to get rid of that 2% issue. I asked Spencer Chandra Herbert about it uh, this week. Uh, he's the chair of that task force. And he told me, well, we're hearing from landlords as well on this. And, you know, that could have a profound effect on them. But clearly this government needs to do something for renters. So expect that one pretty soon. I would anticipate that will be the big headline coming out of whatever the task force recommends. All right. Uh, just a couple minutes left. I want to touch on this real quickly, just for the three of you. I know the BCTF has been sounding uh, or lobbying hard to get an early talk to, uh, going this fall. Uh, October by the earliest, December 1st by the latest. Uh, BCPC now saying this week uh, that uh, they're not going to get anything going until February at the earliest because of municipal elections, getting their board, seeing which trustees survive, uh, and then uh, some some court action on the education front uh, that will affect the class size and composition. Uh, this is going to be a tough negotiation, how you cut it, Vaughn, but it seems to me that it, uh, any negotiation where the two sides can't even agree on when to start might not be so good. Uh, yeah, look, the government is uh, reminding the BCTF and everybody else in the public sector, that the NDP put this structure in place back in the 90s where bargaining is actually done by agencies that represent the employers, school boards, hospitals, regional health districts, and that. And essentially the message that's gone back from the government is uh, you're going to be sitting down talking to the B.C. Public School Employers Association, and that association is going to be made up in part with trustees when we when the civic elections are over. So they're not going to get a negotiation with the cabinet at any point. They're going to be talking to the employer, and that's the B.C. Public School Employers Association. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I think the big part about all this, Shane, that I've been saying all along is all about expectations. And so the expectations are so high from teachers. They've waited so long to be at the negotiating table uh, with the NDP. Uh, but, you know, the, they just don't have that money uh, to spread around. So it's going to be interesting. I think the timing will probably wait until... Uh, you know, the February date that you mentioned. I, I wouldn't see that, though, as an indication that these sides are far apart. I think we're only going to truly be able to understand that when they actually sit down 
uh, at the table and start negotiating. But I think, you know, that expectation issue is going to be one that's going to loom through these entire negotiations. Yeah, and uh, finishing with you, Shannon, uh, a few unions get the media attention in negotiations. The BCTF does. Uh, is this a key one for the government? Oh, I definitely think so. And I agree with Richard that the expectations here are just sky high, which makes, I think, the potential for disappointment also fairly significant. Um, I can see how, you know, the, the, the BCPC needs to wait for the dust to kind of settle after the municipal elections to get things going, but um, December doesn't seem like an unreasonable date, but I do think that they are going to end up waiting until February just because you know, not a lot tends to happen over December and January. So, and again, we're going to have to wait to see until the negotiations actually begin as to how tricky uh, this is going to be for the government. All right, perfect. Uh, short one this week. Look forward to touching base with you guys again uh, next week. Bye-bye. There we go. Vaughn Palmer, Richard Zussman, and Shannon Waters. We'll talk speculation tax on Inside Politics returns after this. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. It's a great and overcast Kamloops day. Uh, we talked a lot about the speculation tax in the last segment with the panel, and we're going to talk about it a little more here. Uh, the CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association of BC, Neil Moody, uh, gave me a shout this week. I did a quick interview with him a few days ago about his organization's opposition to that tax. Let's take a listen to that now. The topic du jour is the speculation tax, which is causing some consternation among mayors at the UBCM, where we find you this morning. Uh, it is an effort to try and, and deal with the housing crisis that's top of mind for a lot of people in this province and one that, that was at one time a Metro Vancouver specific issue but it, uh, has since spread its tentacles around the province. So I guess uh, why don't we just start there. Well, as far as uh, you guys are concerned, well, what's the problem with the speculation tax? Well, there are a number of different problems with it. One is uh, the most obvious is it creates a lot of uncertainty. So it's it's creating an area where buy, home buyers are looking to buy a, a residence a property in British Columbia in, in not only the, design, the designated areas that have been targeted by the speculation tax, but also other areas where they're pulling back on purchases. Uh, we see a lot of uh, contracts that are being lost and uh, reduced um, activity in the marketplace because of this. So uh, it's going to have a ripple effect So on the jobs and the economy side. Um, the impact is going to hit all areas. Uh, there's so many spin-off benefits generated by the industry um, that uh, it's going to have a negative effect. So uh, uh, as an example would be the lost contracts. So a lot of, as an example, some of the buyers coming into the market are putting in stipulations that the contract would allow them to walk away if the tax is implemented. Uh, we're seeing some product suppliers are noticing the drop in sales because of it. So again, this is all under the uncertainty that it creates. Uh, as we know, this tax is only in effect for certain regions of the province, Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, yep. uh, the Okanagan, uh, here in Kamloops. Uh, uh, we do not have the speculation taxes, as well as a large swath of the province. Um, in your mind, is this is is this sort of disparity in regions? Are you seeing different projects and construction activity from one region where the tax doesn't apply to another region where the tax does apply? Well, it's a good point. It raises, um, it creates an unlevel playing field. So if there are homeowners that are looking to purchase a property or if they've got a second home in the area, uh, we'll use the example of a family that perhaps is, is looking to retire in one of the regions. Now, if there's a tax in one region compared to the other region, they're going to perhaps look at this and go, well, you know, if the tax is applied in, I'll use the example of Kelowna, uh, and if I can go over to Kamloops and there's no tax, Kamloops or Penticton or wherever the tax may be, perhaps that's where I can have my house built uh, for retirement. Or they're looking at this and going, well, what if I go into these areas? Is the tax going to come into this area? So it gets back to the uncertainty, and they're actually not proceeding with some of those contracts at all because they're concerned that once the tax is in some regions that it could flow into some of the other regions. Uh, quantify for me, if you can, I don't know if you, if you have numbers in front of you or, or sort of examples to use, but uh, you referenced it a minute ago about you're seeing projects being cancelled, contractors are, are taking second and third looks before deciding to do something. Uh, quantify for me exactly how many projects are being cancelled in areas where the speculation tax applies. Well, there are some of the larger ones that uh, you may have heard of. 
uh, we've got some of our builders within our industry that have gone from a million dollars worth of business down to uh, dropping 30%. We've seen uh, some of these product suppliers that supply all the builders in the, in the affected regions, seeing their sales, their reporting sales drops of around 10%. Uh, it's difficult at this point to, to know exactly what each individual builder is suffering because, um, but generally throughout some of these areas, a good example is if when we look at the trades, uh, for a long time, there's been a lot of talk about there are not enough skilled trades in BC, and, and that is, in fact, very true. However, we're hearing from our builders, our main builders, that the trades are now call. some of the trades are calling the builders looking for work. So there's a gap in their work schedules. Uh, that hasn't been seen for a long time, and that's being caused because of uncertainty in the marketplace. Interesting. Uh, there is an issue here that this tax is trying to address in, in home speculation and the ramping up of housing prices uh, that is very much an issue in Metro Vancouver with spillover effects now in a lot of other communities. Uh, if it's not the speculation tax, if this is something you guys are opposing, I mean, there is an issue at play here. Uh, if it's not the speculation tax, then how, then how do we address it in a way that, that your organization could get behind? Well, first of all, uh, the speculation tax is, is really an inaccurate term. So they, we have to look at more supply. Obviously, everyone's been talking about more supply. We can't be taxing, uh, putting a tax into the marketplace that reduces the supply of housing. In fact, this is what that's, that's going to cause. Uh, when you get reduced construction or builders going, I can't build or they're losing their customers, the stock is going to decrease, and that's just going to exasperate the, the situation of, of what they're trying to achieve with creating more housing stock. Uh, I don't know if you, I mean, you're obviously in the media uh, saying uh, we, we're, not, we're not down with this. Have you attempted to have or have had conversations uh, uh, with cabinet ministers like Carol James or even the premier to say, hey, listen, this, is, this doesn't fly. We'd like to see something done? Yeah, we've been meeting actually with the minister, including Minister James, from the beginning. We were on a technical technical call when it first came out. We were asking for the economic study. There was no economic study that was done. We've engaged in conversations and continue to engage in conversations with them, trying to provide a solution with them. Clearly, there is a housing uh, problem throughout the province. Uh, this is we're we're trying to address uh, how it's going to affect the economy. Uh, we don't want the economy to be affected. It, it creates 199,000 jobs in British Columbia and represents about $25 billion in investment value. So as soon as you start to impact the economy, that's our big concern. It's it's starting to slow down the industry. So we've been trying to communicate this to the minister's office as well. So uh, talks continue, uh, and we will continue the talks with them as well to, to try and provide more data and uh, more information for them. Uh, speaking of that uh, lack of economic study, I know West Kelowna Mayor Doug Finlater has uh, gone the f- uh, Freedom of Information Request route to try and get a sense of, of what um, look at economic impacts or economic modeling was done before this, the speculation tax was levied. Uh, how important is it, do you think, to, to get a sense of, of, of what the province did there before they brought the tax on to understand the economic impact of it? Well, I think it's, it's very important, and again, that as I mentioned, that that's something that we asked uh, just after the tax was announced, after the budget. We, what kind of study has been done on this or, or an analysis on the effects that it might cause? We haven't seen anything yet. Uh, so it's very important. And why did they choose the municipalities? We understand that you know, they're trying to uh, address the vacant home situation, uh, but they chose the regions, and there were some e- regions that were not included. If you look on the island, there's a municipalities that uh, are not included in this so we haven't seen any information on why they chose these areas and uh, as an example in the Kelowna area it's a tourism uh, area as well so why do they choose Kelowna over you know an area for instance like Whistler where there's a very affected by tourism yeah so okay. we're, we're concerned and we've been asking for this but uh, nothing has come forward perfect uh, Neil thanks for taking some time with me this morning to chat appreciate it okay thanks very much that's the uh, CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association of BC, Neil Moody, his group opposing the speculation tax. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, BC Liberals leader, Andrew Wilkinson. Radio NL, radionl.com, local news now. 
from both sides of the floor. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. Pleasure to be joined on the phone line by the leader of the BC Liberal Party, Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew, a lot at play. Uh, you were just spent uh, some time at UBCM. Uh, why don't we start there? Uh, the speculation tax, uh, a prime area of anger for uh, mayors from Vancouver Island through the Okanagan. Now, I, I know you're opposed to it. I know why you're opposed to it. It occurred to me that uh, Mr. Weaver, uh, you might have some commonalities with him, but if I have some comments you made uh, to the media uh, after your speech this week, correct? then it sounds like you, you may not want to extend that olive branch and try and figure something out. So I just want to ask you directly, is it worth picking up the phone and calling Mr. Weaver and saying, hey, uh, we may have an area in common here. Can we force some change here or there? Or th- does that not interest you? The Union of BC Municipalities meeting that half a dozen mayors got a resolution passed saying that the NDP's plan for this phony speculation tax, which is really a retirement tax, that they don't want it, they want to be able to opt out. Now, we have said all along that this is a badly conceived tax. The NDP did no economic modeling. They did it on the back of a napkin. Their officials have no backup information as to how it's going to work. So we and the Green Party have expressed deep concerns. We've said abolish it. The Green Party's dancing around modifying it. But in typical fashion, they won't tell us what they've got in mind. They deal in a very secretive way with the NDP. We put our cards on the table in the spring saying we wanted a flipping tax on condominium paper contracts, uh, that is the contracts before the buildings are built. That's where the speculation occurs. We've seen nothing of substance from the Green Party, so it's a little hard for us to go and uh, talk to them about details when they won't provide us with any. That said, though, Mr. Weaver, and a fair enough critique that, that perhaps he has more bark than bite, but uh, he has said publicly that, it, that under this form of government, he is willing to work with both parties on, on some certain issues. He has not followed through with that on any issues. Uh, but, I mean, it's still in your mind, is there a chance here that you can force some change if it you know, requires maybe a little bridge building with the, with the Greens? Well, the doors are wide open. The Greens could come along and tell us what they think of our flipping tax, which is the real speculation tax. They could come along with a proposal of their own. They've done nothing at all. They haven't reached out at all. Instead, they're in cahoots at the NDP. They keep the NDP in office. And we have to remember that Andrew Weaver does a lot of huffing and puffing and tells us all off about climate change, but then he votes 100% with the NDP. There's not a single vote where he is not slavishly followed the NDP line. So we're pretty skeptical of Andrew Weaver's uh, validity in this space, whether he's actually just blowing smoke again. So the ball's in his court. If he wants us to send us some draft legislation, we'll be happy to look at it. Okay. Uh, let's take a look at the issue as a whole. The speculation tax, uh, although we both know it doesn't tax speculation, more in line with an empty homes tax, uh, is supposed to target all of the craziness going on in the housing market. There's definitely an issue at play here. Uh, so if it's not the speculation tax, Andrew, if, if you had your druthers on this, how do we deal with the issue at hand? There is something crazy going on in the housing market. If it's not this tax, what is it? Well, there are a number of layers to this. We've got to start out with the premise that if you look at BC's population stats, when I arrived in Canlips as a kid, the population of BC was 1.6 million. It's now pushing 4.9 million. That's tripled in my lifetime. And whether it's going to triple again, it's certainly going up. The stats show about 60,000 new people in BC every year. So we have to prepare for that. I think it's fair game for all of us to say that about two-thirds of them are going to end up in the lower mainland. So the next 25 years, we're looking at a million people who need to have somewhere to sleep and a house, a roof over their head. So let's get serious about this. Let's talk about housing supply, get British Columbians to work building places and households for British Columbians. That requires a whole bunch of effort on the part of municipalities to make it easier to get building permits, to move things ahead more quickly. And in terms of speculation, when things are growing so quickly, that's when speculation occurs. People buy things and sit on them. NDP's uh, plan for this so-called speculation tax is just a bad joke. It's just an attack on retirement homes. We've said uh, tax speculation where it lives, which is in all those condominium buildings, whether they're in, you know, in Kamloops or in Kelowna or in Vancouver, Victoria, that's where the real heart of the speculation lies, is flipping paper contracts. 
But what about uh, some of the bad money in there? I mean, there's been some evidence of, of criminal proceeds flowing into housing, uh, foreign nationals parking money in there in case their their own domestic economy collapses. It's almost like a, a foreign bank account they can flee to for some kind of safety. That that to some extent, maybe not obviously not the entirely problem, but that to some extent is contributing. How do you deal with that? Well, the stats that have come out in terms of the citizenship of buyers of property, mostly in the Lower Mainland, have been at a maximum of 5%, sometimes in some places 3%, sometimes 1%. So is that driving the entire housing market? Probably not. We have tens of thousands of people living amongst us who are permanent residents of Canadian citizens, and people think of them as foreigners. Those people have as much right to buy property in this country as anybody else, and so we've got to be clearly focused on what the issue is. We, as the BC Liberals, put on a foreign buyer's tax of 15%. The NDP raised it to 20%. Our effort back in 2016 flattened out the housing market for about six months, which is exactly what the purpose was. And now the NDP have taken on this task, and it's up to them to show that they know how to, what they're doing in this market. They like to throw around a lot of wild allegations, but they need to back it up with some action, and they need to back it up with some data. Uh, let's talk about another aspect of housing and a pretty typical take out the garbage Friday announcement. This rental increase uh, arrived with uh, something like an earthquake, four and a half percent, the maximum allowable. Uh, this government has campaigned uh, on affordability pretty heavily. This flies in the face of that. Uh, you have a market uh, even here in Kamloops that is at or near zero and uh, conditions in Metro Vancouver where I note in the SkyTrain ride the other day, you're seeing campers lined up on the outskirts of Vancouver proper where people are now calling those homes. So uh, rent is is, is a definitely an aspect of housing to tackle and now it's being broadsided again. Uh, how do we deal with that? I mean, it's in legislation. Uh, your government didn't change it. The NDP government has not changed it yet. Is it time to look at legislation for renter caps or, or caps on increases? Well, at least three things to say here. I've said in the leadership race, and I'm saying it again today, we need to make sure we've got the tax incentives for people to build rental housing. The population continues to grow, and like me, when I arrived in Vancouver, uh, moving back to BC after gap many years, I rented for years. Uh, that's because I needed a place to live and I couldn't afford to purchase anything. Obviously, I was just a young man at the time. We need to have rental stock, and that means we need to have the tax incentives to build it. The second thing is we've got to have uh, that supply of housing. And think about this. I've said this for about a year now. Let's build a whole chunk of student housing. That'll take students out of the rental market, provide them with more secure housing nearer where they need to study, get them off the buses and, the, and closer to the campus where they want to be, and it also frees up a huge amount of rental stock. And thirdly, we've seen a government here that purports to be talking about affordability, and really they've accomplished nothing, and now they're talking about a 4.5% rent increase and no sign of the famous $400 rebate they promised. Okay, but would you, if you were Premier, Andrew, would you change the legislation as far as those renter, rental increases? Would you cap it somehow? Well, these things always have to be examined because there's a fine balance between uh, keeping rents low, which is what I wanted when I was a renter, and now that I'm a parent, I think, gee, I hope somebody's prepared to be a landlord so my kids will have a place to live, all three of my kids rent. And they need, of course, to have an affordable place to go to. If you completely cap off any kind of rent increase, landlords go out of the business, they sell them off as strata properties, and suddenly there's nowhere to rent. It's a very fine balance, and you do it on the basis of a lot of economic information. You don't just do it all on the fly. Uh, circling back to your student housing issue, how do you do that? Is it, is it an incentive thing? How do, you, how do you spur that kind of growth? Well, when I was about to leave the Ministry of Advanced Education, we just come to arrangements with uh, University of Victoria. And interestingly, another one of the leading candidates was TRU right there in Kamloops to provide for a structure whereby the private sector would build and operate the housing and it would revert to the university after a few decades. This has been used all over the world. It's used very sparingly in Canada. There's an opportunity there to have private sector investment into rental properties for, dedicated for students. Students are an interesting bunch, of course, because they come and go. They're usually not there for the whole year, but they're a very predictable market, and they're generally a pretty um, coherent bunch of people. You know what you're getting when you get students, and we've all been students. Students are sometimes a little bit uh, rambunctious, so you got to build the properties differently, but nonetheless, that's a real opportunity, and we need to get on it. Yeah, lots of padding on the walls. Uh 
when you were on holidays earlier this summer, uh, I haven't heard you respond to this personally, so I just want to ask you. Uh, Attorney General David Eby uh, asked for the Liberals for yourself to authorize the release of, of government documents that may be under cabinet confidentiality related to the money laundering uh, controversy. Uh, I know Mary Polak in your stead say, hey, unlike the province, we're going to give this some time, we're going to think about it, we'll provide a, a rational, uh, thoughtful answer. Uh, on that topic, have you decided one way or another whether those documents will be released or, or, or no? Well, we're still waiting to see all of the documents. We've seen some of them. And, of course, you have to look at a document before you say let it open to the world. There's a little bit of disingenuous behavior here, too, in that uh, David Eby has ignored a court order from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia put down in late August for him to disclose cabinet documents about a pay dispute. They're appealing that decision. They ignored an earlier court order, and that was appealed to the uh, Superior Court, and uh, Mr. Justice Hinkson, who's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, ordered disclosure of those documents, and David Eby's refused. So we're seeing a lot of hypocrisy out of David Eby these days. You know, he makes a lot of wild allegations, and then when it comes to his behavior, he just snubs his nose at the courts. That's just not right. So do you lead by example then, Andrew, and say, yeah, we're going to release these documents, or do you say, no, politics are at play here, you can get stuffed? There's a lot of politics at play here, but first of all, we've got to see the documents, and we'll need uh, more cooperation than we've had from his ministry to see those documents. All right. Uh, last line of questioning. I haven't heard you comment on the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, court decision that's uh, effectively thrown that project into limbo. Thoughts on that? Well, the Federal Court of Appeal, I think most of us know, I think it was August 30th, I came down with a decision saying that the new owner of the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, that is the Government of Canada, which is you and me, has a bunch of steps to go through before there could be an approval of the pipeline. We have said consistently and throughout we are in favor of responsible economic resource development in British Columbia. That's what this province is built on. When I grew up in Kamloops, that pipeline had already been there since 1953. It continues to be a good, good corporate citizen. And if the economic and environmental standards are met, and if they can meet the requirements set out by the courts, then we have complete comfort with the with proceeding with the pipeline. The concern we have, of course, is the NDP did everything they could to block sensible decision-making. This is an approved project, approved federally, approved provincially. The NDP threw roadblocks in front of it. Now they have this pretty much bogus lawsuit of theirs out there. They say they want to stop it. I mean, it's time to come to their senses and see that the courts have decided on a path forward and the NDP government needs to basically grow up and deal with the situation rather than snub their noses at it for political reasons. Do we need a process that's free of politics or at least that that can get people to buy in? I I know politics and the left and the right are at play here, but it seems to me at the the basis of things, we need a process at the end of the day, everyone can say, okay, well, that was fair and we may like or or not like the decision, but uh, that's the decision we can now move forward. It, It seems to me that's lacking in our current climate. Well, it's sadly in Canada we're getting quite a bad reputation that if you have an arm's length process in the National Energy Board, which is created for exactly the reasons you just described, they go through an exhaustive process, then gets dragged through the courts in more than a dozen lawsuits before there's any certainty. And now we have a, a new set of parameters from the federal court decision that uh, the federal government, the owners of the pipeline, are supposed to um, uh, comply with. That's not good for BC's and Canada's reputation as a place to invest. We need certainty. People need to know if the answer is yes or no. And this endless uh, marathon through the courts is not good for Canada or for Canadians. Perfect. Uh, Hey, thanks for taking some time. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Good to speak with you. That was BC Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL, and then we'll turn our attention to education and a little back and forth over when bargaining should start. First up, BCPC, right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Time to dive right back to Inside Politics. Thank you for listening in this morning. Turning our attention to education, uh, we're on the verge of a new bargaining session between the BC Teachers Federation and the province. However, already the two sides can't even agree on when to start talks. I'm joined by the BC Public School Employers Association Chair, Alan Chell. Off the top, uh, BCTF President Glenn Hansman uh, says his union wants an early start to talks, uh, ideally around Thanksgiving, no later than December 1st. I was pointing to a letter online where it sounds like as far as the dominoes go in your guys' end, uh, it's going to be earliest in February. So uh, why don't we just ask you the straight question here as we look for an early start to negotiations from the teacher side. As far as BCPC goes, uh, any idea what kind of a timeline's in 
front of you guys as far as getting to a table? Yes, um, we will be ready to go um, probably by February. Um, we're scheduled to begin negotiations in March, and this year there's um, two particular, and that's when we would normally begin mar- negotiations, about four months before the expiration of the current collective agreement. And this year we have the added, a couple added factors. One is we have the municipal elections for trustees taking place on October the 20th, and we are expecting somewhere between a 30 to 40% turnover in trustees. And so what we need to do is we have our BC Public School Employers Association annual general meeting um, January 23rd, 24th. And so we need to have our annual general meeting uh, with a large uh, complement of new uh, trustees to go over uh, bargaining objectives and goals. And the other, uh, I think, factor that we both have to take into account is that there's no doubt that one of the significant uh, items for discussion this year will be the issue of class composition. And right now there's an arbitration that will be is taking place on special needs designations, and we're expecting the ruling to come out around the end of January. And so um, to have informed discussions at the bargaining table, we need to get the results of that ruling. So those would be the two primary reasons in terms of the uh, uh, trustee election coming up and the court ruling on special needs designations that we think we're much more productive if we begin our discussions around the beginning of February. Okay, is there any aspect of negotiations or any sort of uh, uh, any issues that you can kind of take out of that and begin early with the TF, or is it just an all-in? Well, all it's all tied together because, uh, you know, it's, this is going to be the most complex round of uh, bargaining that I think both parties have ever experienced, and that's a result of the restoration of language through the Supreme Court decision. And so when you put that, that has such a, it's going to be such a significant issue that impacts all areas of bargaining that we need to be able to fully address that. Um, talking about something else, like um, say um, something like leaves and isolation of the total picture would not be productive. We, I, should, I should point out that the BCTF and BCPC is currently meeting on a regular basis for labor management meetings, and there's regular discussion on issues arising from restored class size and composition language, talking about comp- teacher compensation, teacher teaching on call. So the two parties are working together on a regular basis right now. It's just that the, uh, the aspect of formal negotiations, um, again, will be ready when we are supposed to be ready and probably a bit earlier than that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Glenn Hansman was telling me he's concerned. Uh, he wants an early start because there's, there's complicated issues on the table, not the least of which is the class size and composition language. Uh, do you feel comfortable? I mean, it's a bit of a crystal ball question. No one knows how negotiations play out. But if you start in, say, March, uh, you're looking at uh, two, three months before the, the current contract expires. Uh, do you think you can meet a deadline like that, or, or it's just going to play out how it plays out? Um, I'm, 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 uh, I've been around long enough that uh, I wouldn't want to predict how it's going to play out. I think that um, there's definitely the possibility that we can uh, come to some agreement. You know, what the, I guess the challenging factor is, is that a lot of this language was developed 30 years ago when we started um, uh, local bargaining in 1988, and that was in a different time, and education societies has evolved a lot since then. And so what we need to do is find our mutually uh, agreeable path forward to say, how do we take that 30-year-old language and then translate it into today's uh, uh, education system? So we, we have, uh, both of us have a lot of work ahead, um, but I think we're both going to be um, eager and uh, keen to get that work done. Is there any, I know that, that Mr. Hansman is looking to get something going. Is there anything that the local tables can get started early on, or again, is this just an all-in? No, the, the, the reality is, is that the vast majority of issues are uh, dealt with provincially. And again, what we want to make sure is that the discussions are productive. And so with the court ruling on arbitration coming out at the end of January, that's going to play a big role in terms of informing our discussions, and as well, um, it's hard to know exactly what the turnover will be for trustees, but traditionally it's between 30 and 40 percent. And since we've switched to the four-year term, uh, we're expecting it might be even a bit higher. All right. Uh, just to, from a sort of formatting perspective, I know in the last round of negotiations, uh, the Minister of the Day kind of removed BCPC from the equation. Uh, the, the government of today has restored you guys to your bargaining position. Uh, is it just sort of, you know, all things normal or, or structurally do you guys have to tweak or change anything ahead of bargaining? 
Well, I, the interesting thing is that when the government of the day did remove the BCPC board, uh, they still made sure that there were um, trustees at the bargaining table and to make sure we had that perspective. And so personally, I was at the table when I was on BCPC and I was at the bargaining table when I wasn't. And so um, what I will say is that um, from the employer side, um, what we need to do is we have the Public Sector Employers Council, the Ministry of Education, and the BC Public School Employers Association, and the three of us come together to prepare our bargaining approach and mandates, and, it, um, and we are working very closely together. Um, um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Okay, perfect. Uh, anything else you want to put out in the public domain before before I let you no, go? No, this is um, this is going to, like I said, this is going to be a very complex uh, round of negotiations. We um, we want to give it the respect it deserves. We want to make sure that we're both prepared and ready, and um, uh, looking forward to those discussions. Uh, thanks so much for taking a few minutes of your day with me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Alan Chell. He's the board chair of the BC Public School Employers Association. And we're going to hear from the opposite side of that education coin when the president of the BCTF joins us right on the other side of this break. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Continuing our focus on education here on Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. You've been very vocal with uh, your desire to get to the bargaining table sooner rather than later, uh, ideally around Thanksgiving, but uh, no later than December. Uh, according to a, a letter that uh, I was pointed to online by BCPC, the government's uh, bargaining arm, uh, it sounds like they can't get going till February at the earliest uh, due to a bunch of dominoes, which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, your, your thoughts on that? Well, we'll see. I mean, we think it would be a great shame if we got to the end of the school year and we weren't able to wrap up a new collective agreement. Nobody wants to go into another school year uncertain. We've been through that enough times in recent history. And so the sooner we could all get there and roll up our sleeves and have those difficult conversations and work through things, the better, um, because it's not going to get wrapped up in a couple days. Uh, the past two rounds build over three separate school years. We can't be doing things like that anymore, and now's the time. Okay, but the, the BCPC was pretty clear, both in the letter and to me this morning, that uh, they want municipal elections to go through. They feel there's going to be a pretty good clip of turnover at their board. Uh, there's some other matter that's got to figure itself out in January, and then that sets the table for negotiations. doesn't sound like there's a lot of room to move there. Uh, maybe they're posturing in public, and maybe, in fact, you are. I don't know, but uh, do you feel like there is any give there at all, really? Well, I think there's still room for conversation. It's, you know, there's a lot of challenges inherent in our sector, especially with the return of all this language through the Supreme Court of Canada around class size and class composition. That hasn't changed in over a quarter century. And given that there's 60 different sets of it, we need as much time and space as possible. And so, you know, if not Thanksgiving and, and not December 1st, there has to be some willingness to commence earlier than what we would normally, and I am mindful that QPK-12, to which also negotiates with BCPC, which also has the involvement of trustees, um, their collective agreement also expires on June 30th, 2019, and they already concluded bargaining pending ratification, and so it seems a bit inconsistent to say we have to hold off for teachers when we've already wrapped up negotiations with another bargaining unit in the same sector, and so we'll, we'll see. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the start date isn't sort of the important part, but what is important is making sure that there is enough time and space and goodwill at the table to, to make this happen because no one wants to see disruptions. And just knowing how long things dragged on for during the last two rounds and how much acrimony there was because of unconstitutional legislation and other things, we want to put our best foot forward and do this right and not have uh, September 2019 with unresolved collective bargaining looming over a new school year. Now, I know in correspondence uh, you sent uh, back to uh, back the other way uh, that there's legislation that governs the way you guys can bargain, and you were kind of uh, looking at pulling out some of the smaller items, perhaps getting the bargaining going at the local tables and leaving some of the bigger pieces of meat to get the teeth sunk in at, at the big table and perhaps get an earlier start via that way. Uh, as I mentioned to you before we started chalk talking on the record, uh, BCPC has kind of said to me, well, no, I think this is an, an all-in deal. It's got to be omnibus. We've got to throw it all on the table all at once and figure it all out. Your reaction to that? 
Well, that that might be more on the posturing side, to use your word earlier. So we'll we'll see we'll see about that. I mean, I, there's there needs to be conversation around that because the reality is, both from the perspective of our locals and I'm sure school districts too, there are a lot of things that they would like to chew on that are unique to them, and so. The provincial table that we have that takes into account all 60 school districts around the province, its main purpose is there to deal with the big ticket items, the things common to everyone, salary, benefits, class size and class composition, the things that a provincial government and treasury board in particular would want to have a voice in, and broader public policy issues. And so that is a big enough menu of things to talk about um, we shouldn't have to concern ourselves with things that are more unique to one school district like Kamloops Thompson School Districts that people in the Kootenays or the Lower Mainland might not care about at all. So the question is, is there a way for the first time in a quarter century to allow teachers in their communities and individual school districts to come up with solutions that make sense to them um, face-to-face in their communities because, uh, you know, Kamloops Thompson isn't the only school district in the province that has an urban center as well as schools in outlying communities like Clearwater and Blue River. And so the way that jobs get filled or, you know, internal postings or how layoffs occur or just processes around staff meetings, how we do training for people, we're not going to come up with a one-size-fits-all approach for the entire province, and nor should we, because you have to do things that reflect the actual geographical needs and the interests of um, folks in their communities. And so, unfortunately, for the past 25 years, there's been no way of resolving um, disagreements around those things, and so there's a tremendous amount of language in the collective agreements between teachers and their school districts that has remained frozen in time since 1994. Okay. Uh, I know that when I talked to you last, which wasn't that long ago, you told me an early start to bargaining uh, would be good because if it got going later, then then there may not be enough time uh, to get things done and wrapped up, A, before the current contract expires, and B, perhaps before a new school year begins. But uh, if we do end up seeing full-blown negotiations begin in March as opposed to uh, you know, in October, November, or December, does that does your confidence in getting a timeline that that falls in with the the deal expiring, or perhaps September first, does your confidence erode a little bit in getting a deal in place by the by then, or no? Oh, absolutely. We would be really worried that we wouldn't be able to get done if we don't start until the end of March. That leaves only April, May, and June. Uh, with and that's not enough time, in our view, given our experience in the past few rounds, and with the new variable for the first time since. 2002, where we've had 60 different different sets of collective agreement language around class size and class composition that we're working with. And that is a, I don't want to sort of undersell the magnitude of that. That's going to take a lot of minutes and hours and days at the table to talk about and, and really think through what's going to be best around the entire province. And just knowing that in the past two rounds, the ones that concluded in 2014 and in 2012, we started one school year, went through the entirety of another school year, and then concluded in a third school year. And uh, that's not the way we want to do things. So the, the sooner the better. We, you know, we, were, we take some heart from the fact that both BCGU and QP, again, pending ratification, um, were able to reach a deal so quickly. Um, but the set of issues that we deal with um, in K-12 for teachers, especially the complexities of our class size and class composition language, are going to take a lot of time. And so the more time, the better. And there are many instances where one set of trustees, an outgoing set of trustees, inherit decisions from a previous one. And uh, if there are some, like, bigger issues that they're concerned about, that government's concerned about, that they want a new set of trustees to look at. You know, there's a, there's a different way of staging things, too. You could get the conversation going on some topics um, and then hold off um, for fuller, more robust conversations on, on some of the more challenging ones. But uh, there has to be a um, some alternative to simply waiting until the end of March and then hoping that things get resolved in only three months left in the school year when the track record, um, at least in the past 12 years, has been 
really long, protracted sets of market. Uh, last question here, Glenn, but refresh my memory. When does your term as president end? June 30th, 2019. I'd like to get it done before yeah. I'm done, too. Yeah, okay. That was my question, whether whether the leadership uh, change there might might have some kind of an impact or, or effect on those talks as well. Well, we've, uh, we've encountered this before, too. Um, Irene Lanziger, uh, current president of the BC Federation of Labor, she was our president back in 2006 um, when we successfully, uh, successfully reached a five-year agreement with the BC Liberals um, in the last week of the school year. <laughs> and it was the same week that the collective agreement was going to expire. And so it'd be nice to be able to replicate that set of circumstances where a, a fair deal for teachers um, and a deal that works for employers is reached before the current one expires. And um, that was 12 years ago. And our goal in this round is to achieve the same thing. That was the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. Interesting times ahead on the bargaining front, as the two sides look like they're not going to begin until probably early in the new year. And then who knows what happens after that. One more segment here on Inside Politics. We're going to touch base with Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone as he spent the week at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention. Next on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Into the home stretch now on Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the BC Liberals MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone. Uh, show's getting a little long, Todd. I could use a little coffee. <laughs> I'm on about my fourth cup already. This <laughs> I always wondered what keeps that hair up. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, another busy week at the UBCM. Uh, all sorts of issues percolating at the uh, at the civic level, uh, not the least of which was a number of mayors from Vancouver Island through to the Okanagan who, who gathered to uh, express their anger and frustration at the province over the speculation tax. Uh, why don't we start there? What, what, what did you hear on the ground there? Well, actually, what we saw uh, this week was was largely unprecedented, uh, where you had a near-unanimous approval of a resolution on the floor of the Union of BC Municipalities uh, calling on the NDP to uh, to rethink their uh, speculation tax and, and specifically to allow for a, an opt-out uh, provision so that municipalities uh, uh, you know can, can decide for themselves whether or not they want this uh, speculation tax to apply within their community. Uh, you know, there, there were mayors, uh, small towns and big cities and uh, uh, folks that have uh, you know, been, been aligned uh, perhaps a bit more with the current government than the former government and vice versa. And, and they were all uh, locked in arms, uh, uh, calling on the government to, to, uh, to, to reconsider their, their speculation tax. So that was quite, uh, quite, uh, quite something. I haven't seen that at the UBCM in, in quite a number of years. Well, is it enough of an opposition to trigger uh, some kind of changes or alterations? I mean, I don't know what the province might do. I know Vancouver does have an empty home tax, and while this is called a speculation tax, it's much more in line with an empty homes tax. Uh, could they pull the trigger and allow municipalities to go in and out? Because Carol James, from my perception of comments she made, says to, seems to think that they're going to stay the course on this thing. Uh, Shane, I fear that you're right about this one. Uh, I, I certainly get no uh, sense from Carol James and the NDP that they're going to backtrack uh, on on the uh, speculation tax. And you know, the, the overall theme actually at this at this convention, when you talk to folks uh, just out in the hallways and and at the roundtables and so forth, uh, you know, there's a there's a bit of weariness starting to creep into to most people's minds about just the level of, of, of taxation that has been imposed on, on their communities and, and on British Columbians uh, since the NDP took power, you know, about $8 billion over the three years. Uh, and uh, that coupled with a pretty dramatic increase in spending and no plan on, on how to pay all these bills, uh, it was really starting to uh, starting to wear on people. But obviously, the speculation tax was... Uh, uh, that in the uh, the employer health tax, which is uh, represents a massive downloading of costs uh, onto local governments and actually property taxpayers, uh, those were you know obviously very specific uh, issues from a tax perspective. But general weariness at the level of taxation, I think, is a, uh, definitely has been a key theme at this year's convention. Just out of curiosity, I know you're in and out of meetings, not only on the broader issues but some uh, finite regional ones as well. Uh, what were you championing as far as uh, local governments uh, in your jurisdiction? Well, uh, you know what we're saying is uh, this: this government's got to uh, has got to uh, uh, recognize that uh, you know resource development, sustainable, uh, uh, responsible resource development, uh, uh, whether that be mining or forestry or, or energy, uh, is still uh, largely the backbone of uh, of the economy in this province, and uh, we have never seen a, a flight of capital. Uh, out of British Columbia, let alone uh, people not uh, deciding not to invest in this province. We haven't seen this 
this uh, type of scenario in, in quite a number of years. Uh, so communities, whether it's Kamloops or uh, you know up the Thompson, North Thompson Valley, uh, or elsewhere in the interior in the north, uh, you know, people are are pretty uh, concerned about the uh, the government's uh, you know cheerleading of the uh, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline decision recently, uh, and just generally uh, what what appears to be a lack of of support for uh, for for British Columbia's resource sectors. So we had a lot of those kinds of conversations with folks. Um, uh, you know, really tried to do a lot more uh, listening this week than talking, and uh, uh, certainly heard heard it. I got an earful on the, on that on that front. <laughs> uh, that said, though, and I think we may hear some more uh, uh, details of this in the in the premier's speech later today. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be an LNG project in the coast that's ready to go. Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, we worked really hard as a, as a former government, uh, certainly the entire time I was there, uh, to uh, to create the framework within which uh, uh, the the LNG industry could uh, could really take hold in British Columbia. I mean, this could be a, a, a upwards of a forty billion dollar private sector investment uh, in the province. So, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I. Uh, I think the NDP have given uh, the proponents lots of reasons uh, uh, for for uh, for uh, you know sober second thought on whether or not British Columbia is really open for business these days. Uh, uh, but I but I you know as a British Columbian first and foremost, I certainly hope uh, there is a final investment decision because that will be good for uh, for communities all across the province. Uh, before we let you go, Todd, anything else that sort of regionally, whether it's the Thompson Nicola Regional District or some of the various local governments around Kamloops, uh, anybody putting a bug in your ear to champion uh, anything else down at UBCM this week? Well, I, I was in uh, uh, meetings with uh, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena and the Village of Chase uh, to specifically get an update from her on uh, the TransCanada projects east of Kamloops. Uh, uh, you know, uh, nice words, but uh, again, we'll we'll believe that uh, that those projects are actually going to happen when we we see the actions that suggest uh, uh, that they're going to happen, and that will come through through tendering. Uh, uh, so, so we had that discussion uh, and uh, managed to have uh, uh, some interesting uh, you know conversations in the hallway uh, uh, with some uh, folks in the Ministry of Health and and with Adrian Dixon himself as well. It, it uh, you know the good news is it would appear that uh, Royal Inland Hospital is still very much on track and. Uh, and so we're not going to let up in advocating for that either. Uh, and I know that uh, the representatives of Kamloops, uh, the TNRD, uh, uh, as well as all communities within the TNRD, were uh, were, were uniform in, in uh, making that message loud and clear to uh, to the government as well. Yeah, I think that Trans Canada story used to Kamloops far, far from over. Uh, yeah, you got that right. <laughs> all right, we'll touch base on that and a few other things, of course, in the weeks ahead. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. That was good, Shane. Have a good uh, have a good weekend. You as well. That's it for today's version of Inside Politics. Thank you so much for tuning in. My thanks to my guests today, Richard Zussman, Shannon Waters, Vaughn Palmer, uh, BCPC's Alan Chell, and the BC Home Builders Association's Neil Moody. We'll see you again here on Radio NL next week. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now.